How to spread the word all around the world about the Mike Farwell Show experience. Let's go now. We might get beyond 40 listeners if we spread the word all around the world. On this day, 26 years ago, 1998, Oasis, I know you know that was Oasis, went to number one on the UK singles chart with that song right there, All Around the World. What makes it a little more significant is that the song set a chart record in the UK because it was the longest running song ever to reach number one on that UK chart. All Around the World is a nine minute and 38 second song. And believe you me, I was considering playing the song in its entirety. Why not just put my feet up for nine and a half minutes to start the show and we can listen to Oasis. All Around the World was also one of the first songs to be written by Noel Gallagher. Of course, Noel and Brother Liam were Oasis. Uh, And the band had reportedly been rehearsing it as far back as 1992. So they better ding-dang well have it down, like mastered, by 1998 when it was released and made number one on the UK singles chart. A 9 minute 38 second song. You know, that makes me think of not only all of the longer songs that exist. Stairway to Heaven famously comes to mind for most of us. And we had a little bit of fun with Freebird on one of our <laughs> All Request Friday shows uh, a couple of weeks ago. But there's a longstanding joke in the radio business, particularly for those of us who have worked in music radio or are currently. And it's tough when there aren't long songs if you need to take a break. Way back when, we used to have to play each song individually. Now, computers load a bunch of songs all at once, and you can get six or nine or 12 if the songs are three minutes each, right? Breaks. Back in the day, if you had a three-minute and 20-second song and you really needed to use the little boy's room, boy, oh boy, you had to make sure you could do it in three minutes and 20 seconds. Or you would strategically play a longer song, a la All Around the World, and it's nine minutes and 38 seconds. It also takes me back to the days, you remember burning CDs? Like, I'm old enough to have made mixtapes by trying to record songs off the radio and you would get so annoyed by the announcer talking over the beginning of the song. No, Mr. Announcer, I don't want you on my mixtape. I just want the song. Stop ruining the intro. And then we went from making mixtape cassettes to burning CDs of our favorite songs, make mixed CDs. And oh my goodness, did I have some doozies over the years. And one of them was strictly... Songs that were five minutes or longer. Red Barchetta from Rush made that list. Anyway, all around the world, going to number one for Oasis on the UK singles chart back on this day in 1998. It is Wednesday, the 24th of January. Good morning. Thank you very much for stopping by, spending some of your time with us on the program today. As you know, when we begin the show... You are welcome to participate in all of the shenanigans. 519-570-2545, star 570, and 1-800-570-5715. Your Farwell Show 5 list of things to keep in mind for this Wednesday morning. Waterloo Regional Police investigating armed robberies on back-to-back days in our community. 
And as you just heard in that 9 a.m. update with Mark Douglas, Guelph police now also investigating an armed robbery at a pharmacy. So that's three in two days, Kitchener, Cambridge, and then Guelph. Curious to say the very least. Uh, Number two on your Farwell Show 5 for this Wednesday morning. You can share your thoughts about the plans to redevelop the Preston Springs property in Cambridge at a public meeting on February the 5th. Number three, after Cambridge voted down the idea last month, the city of Kitchener is now exploring the possibility of building affordable housing over parking lots. We've already provided land for supportive housing, the YW project on Block Line Road. Uh, city of Kitchen has provided the land for a better tent city. We're doing a great job and I think we're going to do even more. So the, the reason I brought this forth was just to highlight surface parking lots as another tool to help us address affordable and supportive housing needs in our community. That is Kitchener's Ward 2 Councillor Dave Schneider, who brought forward the motion to further explore the idea of housing over parking. It passed unanimously at Kitchener's Council meeting on Monday night. Regional Council is going to talk about the idea today on a motion being brought forward by Cambridge Councillor Pam Wolfe. Number four on your Farwell Show 5 for this Wednesday morning, the Northwest Territories Coroner's Office is expected to provide an update this morning into yesterday's deadly plane crash near the town of Fort Smith. So far, we've only been told there were fatalities, but there is no word on how many people were on the plane or if there were any survivors. So you begin to try to piece together what you know, right? Like the plane, for example, can hold 19 people. Were there that many passengers on board? I mean, you don't have to release the names. I understand the whole next of kin thing, but I I, I would think you, you could say how many people are dead or presumed dead. Nonetheless, number five on your Farwell Show 5 list of things to know for this Wednesday morning, a federal judge says the liberal government's use of the Emergencies Act in early 2022 to clear convoy protesters was unreasonable and it infringed on protesters charter rights deputy prime minister christia freeland responded to that ruling we are aware of the court decision we have discussed it with the prime minister with cabinet colleagues with senior federal government officials and experts we respect very much canada's independent judiciary however We do not agree with this decision, and respectfully, we will be appealing it. It will be a respectful appeal. Federal Court Justice Richard Mosley wrote that while the protests, quote, reflected an unacceptable breakdown of public order, the invocation of the Emergencies Act, quote again, does not bear the hallmarks of reasonableness, justification, transparency, and intelligibility and that is your farwell show five for this wednesday morning it is 9 13 just following on what we heard from deputy prime minister christia freeland and how respectfully this decision will be appealed are we surprised by this i mean you could just acknowledge that we done and gummed one up here but instead it's kind of like a doubling down by the federal government How do you feel about the ruling that the use of the Emergencies Act was unreasonable 
and the fact that the federal liberal government intends on appealing the ruling. I suppose we should expect the appeal, right? Your thoughts on the judge's decision about the application of the Emergencies Act about two years ago? Let me know. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. So a federal judge said yesterday that the Liberal government's use of the Emergencies Act in early 2022 to clear convoy protesters was unreasonable and it infringed on protesters' charter rights. The federal government says, thank you for the decision. Respectfully, we will appeal. 519-570-2545, star 570 1-800-570-5715. You know, it occurs to me that you can be supportive of the effort and the concerted effort at that a couple of years ago to encourage people to get vaccinated, right? You can be supportive of the research that went into the creation of those vaccines. And you can do that and feel that way along with being opposed to the application of the Emergencies Act, which I certainly was. There was absolutely a need to regain some semblance of order in Ottawa. But I felt at the time that we had the tools to do it if only we we were to apply those tools. And for whatever reason, police seemed paralyzed with what was before them a couple of years ago. I remember when Kitchener Centre MP Mike Morris came forward and said the same thing along the lines of thinking that it was an overreach to apply the Emergencies Act in order to clear out the convoy protesters. And that's when it really struck me how independent his voice really is, right? Uh, Granted, in a party of two, you're not getting whipped around by a caucus of any kind. Uh, But still, uh, Mike Morris made it clear that he is going to make decisions and speak from his heart and his set of beliefs in the House of Commons. Let's go to the phones. Kyle, good morning. Good morning. I didn't know that unreasonable was the law. Is that what they mean? Like, is this just an opinion that it was unreasonable? Well, that's what a ruling from a court really is, right? It's an opinion. I mean, I guess so, but I mean, it's more of a law-based opinion than anything, right? Don't they follow the It's law a legal or... opinion, for sure, and they would look at precedent and examine all sorts of things, yes. Right, and then the other thing I got to say is, where's the accountability of this government that's been around? I mean, it seems like every time they get in trouble or something goes on, there's no accountability. They just fight it off like, they, like they're always in the right, you know? So there's both sides to this, but... I don't know, man. The appealing thing, every time I hear something that they're going to appeal this or they don't disagree with that, there's there's no accountability with this government anymore. It's just really tiring of the same rhetoric over and over and over again. So that's all i got to say. Thanks, Mike. All right, Kyle. Appreciate the call. I don't think that's an uncommon feeling at this time. And I'm not really surprised. Oftentimes when a court ruling goes against you, you take the opportunity to exercise your right to appeal It'd be kind of nice, I guess. And maybe it makes it go away. Just imagine if you lose the appeal and then you're even closer to the election sometime next year or later this year. I don't know. Regardless, I it, it wouldn't be the worst thing, would it? If you just 
accepted the ruling of the federal court justice and said, mea culpa, we're sorry, although that doesn't always go over well either, (laughs) does it, with the federal liberal government? Look, bottom line is it's not going to make the path back to office for the liberals in Canada any easier. That is for sure. It is 922. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Nine twenty-six, four minutes away from your nine thirty update at the City News Center. Always time to talk to you on the show. Let's go back to the phones. John, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Yeah, in regards to the Emergency Act and the opinion of the the judge there, yeah, I do agree with that, and I agree with what, what you've consistently said on this. The government used uh, a sledgehammer to put in finishing nails, which works, but get a lot of collateral damage now they've set the bar way too low on this thing the worst part is now they're going to appeal it and you know what's that going to cost and who's going to pay for that so it's just another poor uh poor decision by this government anyway thank you sir thanks john appreciate the call and you know what a what a great analogy there right bringing a sledgehammer to pound in some finishing nails really there are so many things we can point to that went wrong in terms of any effort, if you can really call it effort, to disperse the convoy two years ago. I mean, we can point at police in Ottawa, at provincial police who were ultimately called in, the provincial government, and that's fine, but none of that excuses the extraordinary application of essentially the War Measures Act. It didn't need to be done. Just get people to do their jobs. Like, you didn't need the Emergencies Act to get this mission accomplished, if you will. Chuck, good morning. Hi, good morning. I'm kind of taking the opposite view of that. I think that that situation got out of hand. The police were ineffective or not doing what they needed to do. We had no other choice but to clean this up. If you were a citizen of Ottawa, you would have thought that that was very reasonable to do. Uh, I understand. uh, Yeah, I think people in Ottawa, for sure, Chuck, I I feel for them because this did have to be cleared up. But but what makes you like, why do you say the Emergencies Act needed to be used to get it done? I don't know the uh, minutia of what the different tools were that you're referring to, but all the tools that were being used or could have been used weren't being used. And therefore... They had to get it up. It lasted, what, two or three days, and they took it off. It was a matter of, let's get this done. Let's give these people some uh, peace and quiet and, uh, and take care of the citizens of our country. Not everybody is a protester. Chuck, I don't. I don't know what the foul was. What? what well, what's what's the foul? Here? So what I what I would submit to you is that the work that was done could have been done without the. Emergencies Act being applied. People just had to do their jobs, right? They needed to bring well, they in. Though, but, Mike. They I know, weren't. but how did the Emergencies Act make them do their jobs? It didn't. Well, it brought in other measures that uh, I saw a lot of police there. And yeah. Somehow they got uh, got a, um, uh, so that they could form the uh, the amount of uh, force and so on that they needed to to get rid of that. But they could have and done like that. I say, what? What's the foul? Right. Who my, did it hurt now? But this is my point, Chuck. See, they could have done that. They could have called in more police. They could have done all of these things without 
using the Emergencies Act. They could have done all of that without the Emergencies Act. But you just said the police were there and they had the tools and they were ineffective. They didn't do it. They, so, because they weren't acting. So they, they were asked, but there was politics involved by Ontario not uh, uh, getting the OPP to go in and so on and so forth. So there was a whole bunch of, uh, uh, let's just wait. Let's just wait. Give them more time. They'll leave. Well, they weren't leaving. It had to be cleaned up. It was cleaned up in a couple days. Uh, like I say, what's the foul? Who did this hurt? I don't know who it hurt. All right, Chuck, appreciate the call, and we will we'll gr- agree to disagree on that. I mean, I don't think it was necessary that some bank accounts were frozen in all of this. I just don't believe that the Emergencies Act was required to get these people to do their jobs, right? To bring in more police to get people to act i don't it's my understanding that there's nothing in the emergencies act that made it necessary to essentially obligate people to do the jobs they were tasked with doing nonetheless glad to have the conversation glad to have you a part of it time to get you an update from the city news center and then let's talk about making roundabouts safer for pedestrians this is the mike farwell show on city news 570 Well, you know that this region loves its roundabouts. You know that I don't necessarily love our roundabouts, but hey, they're here. They are absolutely a permanent and growing part of the landscape. So I guess we best just get used to them. And there will, of course, be more roundabouts. One in particular we want to talk about is going to be at Franklin Boulevard and Saginaw Parkway in Cambridge, which is right by St. Benedict Catholic Secondary School, which means there will be lots of people walking in the area of this new roundabout. How do we make it as safe as we can for them? A suggestion brought forward by regional staff is to create a pedestrian tunnel so that rather than crossing the roundabout, you go under it. Doug Craig is a regional councillor representing Cambridge, joins us for a chat about it. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, Mike. What do you make of the idea, a pedestrian tunnel for the roundabout at Franklin and Saginaw Parkway? Well, Councillor Pam Wolf and I have both been briefed on this, and I, I think it's an excellent idea. It's uh, suggesting that uh, that uh, pedestrian traffic on the west side of Franklin would be go on a, under a tunnel under to, right towards St. Benedict School. And it's probably one of the safest options. Uh, we have looked at these over the years, and there has always been a concern uh, about uh, pedestrian traffic with students in particular around schools. And I think this uh, answer that staff have come up with uh, is uh, will get support at Regional Council, I believe, and uh, will move us forward in a, in a safe manner in dealing with the, the students' uh, uh, needs in terms of uh, safety. Yeah, I guess you can't get any safer than by removing the pedestrians from the vehicle traffic completely, right? That's the best way to go. That's correct. And it, this, the particular landscaping uh, of how this is going to be done, it, it won't be a tunnel that goes down and then up. It goes straight from one area uh, of the road, underneath the road, straight out into the uh, the same area on the, uh, the St. Benedict side. So it's a level 
funnel that's being considered. Uh, and I think it's terrific. I think it's a, a good way of looking at things. This has been an issue uh, since the beginning of roundabouts, that how do we deal with uh, the pedestrian traffic? How do we deal with students at uh, different schools? Yeah, and this is something that's really been on my mind, Doug, because we've seen, unfortunately, for my liking, certainly, too many people being struck by drivers of vehicles at roundabouts. And I just wonder if an idea like this is, you know, in place now and perhaps we move forward with it. Is there any possibility of retrofitting previous, uh, previously built roundabouts, existing roundabouts, to make them safer for pedestrians? Well, that would be very expensive. And I think, too, with, with this particular uh, t- topographical area, it lends itself <clears throat> to a tunnel under the road. So I think this is one of the things that uh, certainly accelerated the whole idea of moving forward with this concept. There are options as well for a signalized intersection as another example. I, I suspect that the tunnel is the most expensive option here. Are you comfortable with the cost? Well, I'm comfortable with making people safe, and I think that's the most important issue here. Uh, I don't think it's extraordinary from what I've heard, and uh, we, this will certainly go to regional council for discussion. Uh, But I think that the safety of the students is primary in my mind. At least one councillor on city council in Cambridge has expressed concern about what might happen in that tunnel under the road when it's constructed. Do you have any concern about bad behaviour, so to speak, in the tunnel? Uh, Not at all. I think that, uh, like I say, I come back to the geography of the area there that will make it level right underneath it will be uh, and it will be well lit these are all the things that i'll be asking about and councillor wolf in terms of how we move forward with this no i think it's a great idea i recall doug uh many years ago in a previous conversation between the two of us when you were still mayor of cambridge and we talked about all of the roundabouts that were coming to franklin boulevard specifically as you know i've never been a huge fan but do you do you think we've gone in the right direction here with all the roundabouts we now use to move traffic i I absolutely do because in the very beginning there was always concerns with new concepts roundabouts were new concepts they talked about 11 roundabouts on Franklin. Everybody was aghast at that. Uh, but today I can, I can say to you, and I feel very strongly, that most people uh, value the roundabouts in Franklin. The main thing and the main reason we went to them was because they're safer. You don't get those uh, uh, accidents that you get at lights with people blowing through red lights and uh, hitting uh, other cars and so on. And the statistics will prove that. Doug, as always, I appreciate your time on the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Mike. Take care. Enjoy your day. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Doug Craig is a regional councillor who represents Cambridge, and in that capacity, along with his colleague on regional council, Pam Wolf, another representative of Cambridge, they've been briefed on this idea of the roundabout at Franklin Boulevard and Saginaw Parkway. It includes the Elgin Street area as well. And because you're right near St. Benedict's High School, the idea is to make it as safe as possible for pedestrians, let's create a pedestrian tunnel. So there will be no mixing whatsoever of people and drivers of vehicles. Pedestrians and drivers of vehicles. I can't imagine you can get any safer than that. And we need only go back to one of our original roundabouts on Homer Watson at Blockline, right? Right near St. Mary's. And the 
terrible incident where a young girl was struck by a bus and seriously injured. So, of course, when you're going to have that kind of pedestrian traffic around a roundabout, you're looking to make it as safe as possible. I love it, quite frankly. I wish we could go back and retrofit every roundabout. But I guess that's wishful thinking. We'll take a break and come back with your calls. What do you think of the pedestrian tunnel? Can't get much safer than this when it comes to crossing a roundabout, right? This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Well, I'm comfortable with making people safe, and I think that's the most important issue here. I don't think it's extraordinary from what I've heard, and this will certainly go to regional council for discussion, but I think the safety of the students is primary in my mind. I don't see a way that regional council doesn't decide in favor of the pedestrian tunnel. For me, my only real wish is that we could go back and retrofit or redesign every roundabout so that there's a pedestrian tunnel. But as Doug Craig, regional councillor for Cambridge, whose voice you just heard, points out, the landscape at this particular roundabout, Franklin Boulevard and Saginaw Parkway in Cambridge, right by St. Benny's, lends itself to this tunnel. 519-570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715, George, good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm so glad you brought this up with uh, Doug to talk about this. Mike, that is my neighborhood. So I talked over my wife, my kids. We're all excited. We like biking, walking. So this will be an added feature for us to walk around, get exercise. I hope they do it right where it's not a tunnel effect, but more like a wide walkway between the school and that shopping plaza there. So we're excited. The only thing I'm worried about is um, the cost for us taxpayers in the region. How much is that going to cost? Yeah, George, great point. And I and I get it. And thanks for reminding us of the plaza that's there as well, because it is a place that you would want to be going for the variety of stores that are there to do some shopping. And as Doug Craig said, you know, when I asked him about the cost, he says, I'm concerned about safety. And listen, with the high school right there, like we're talking a thousand students, give or take, back and forth every day. So given the sheer number of pedestrians, you know, I, I, I can't see the price tag being prohibitive. I know it'll be the most expensive way to go, but it's 100% the safest too. Steve, good morning. Uh, good morning, Mike. Um, just a couple of things. First of all, I'm not entirely familiar with that area, but given the fact that there's a high school there, yes, a tunnel might be the best solution. But I wonder, why doesn't the local government, provincial government, with all the new roundabouts, seek ideas from countries that have had roundabouts for years? I mean, we seem to be flapping about with trying to come up with something. I mean, who in God's name ever thought it was a good idea to have a pedestrian crossing at the entrance to a roundabout? where drivers are forced uh, by the nature of the roundabout to take their eyes, uh, uh, their vision to the left to see what's coming. I mean, go go to the U.K. and find out what their solutions have been. Uh, you know, places, like I say, where roundabouts have been around and a way of life for many, many years. Steve, that is perfectly said. Thanks very much for the call because I could not possibly agree more. And what I've asked for, given the number of pedestrians that we have seen struck by drivers of vehicles over the last year, year and a half, is to, at minimum, 
move the pedestrian crossing further away from the roundabout entrance because Steve puts it perfectly. As a driver, you are forced to look left to watch for a clearance while driving. And and you put the pedestrian right there. What if you put the pedestrian, imagine this, 25 meters back. Oh, just imagine the difference. Linda, good morning. Yes, hi, Gail um, I'm, I, My feeling is about the tunnel at um, uh, St. Benedict. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm trying to picture it. Like, doesn't, what, a tunnel is underground? That's right. Well, do you not have to raise the surface? No, you, you, it? you dig beneath it. Okay. I don't think, I'm not in favor so much of a tunnel because I see down the road, it's going to be used for nefarious purposes. As a night, it's already come up. I thought of that, um, that wrongdoings will be going on down there. And then um, that's going to incur additional costs then either to the school or the city to be patrolling it, keeping it secure so that at nighttime people aren't sleeping in it, doing drugs in it, um, you know, all kinds of bad behavior down there. Um, no, I, I'm not very keen on a tunnel. Um, I know the area well. There's what's wrong with the traffic lights that are already there. It, they, it works perfectly fine. Um, I don't see any reason to change it, um, to incur costs, to figure out something else. When I believe a traffic, the traffic lights work perfectly well. All right, Linda, appreciate the call. The traffic lights are going to disappear when the roundabout appears anyway. The roundabout is going there come heck or high water. And just so you kind of have a better sense of this tunnel, it's not as though it's going to be, you know, a really lengthy tunnel fully, you know, closed in underground. But there will be some shelter from the elements for sure. And a way to be hidden from most public view if you get to the middle of this tunnel, kind of like the middle of the street, right? Except you're below it. So your concern, Linda, is echoed by Councillor Nicholas Ermetta at City Council in Cambridge, who also worries about some deviant behaviors occurring within that tunnel. And maybe that becomes an unintended consequence. I guess we'll have to wait and see. What's paramount here, I believe, is the pedestrian safety. We'll take a break. Come back with more of your calls on the Mike Farwell Show. A pedestrian tunnel at a new roundabout in Cambridge by St. Benedict's. This is City News 570. Look, I hate roundabouts. I do. And I'm sorry to use the word hate. I know. My friend Neil Aitchison says, don't use that word, Michael. I really, really dislike, strongly dislike roundabouts. I understand the safety aspect. I get it. I think we've gone a little bit roundabout crazy here in the region, and I and I don't love their design. I think they're a little bit too wee for my liking. If we're going to make a roundabout, let's make a roundabout. You know what I mean? Big roundabout. Anyway, and clearly we have had difficulty safely incorporating pedestrians into our traffic circles. Now the idea in Cambridge at Franklin Boulevard and Saginaw Parkway, right where St. Benny's High School is, The idea there is to put a pedestrian tunnel underneath the roundabout because 
you're going to have a high volume of pedestrian traffic there. Makes a whole heck of a lot of sense to me. What say you? And back to the phones we go. Dave, good morning. Good morning. How you doing? I'm doing all right, thank you. How are you? Good, good, good. I'll just uh, tell you, I uh, remember some time, uh, a little bit of time I spent in living in Montreal. There was a uh, an underground tunnel through one of the neighborhoods up there, and uh, it was nicknamed the Pea Tunnel for obvious oh, reasons. Dear. And that's what it always smelled like. And um, I remember from the locals, people mentioning it. Yeah, it's not the safest feeling walking through this. Uh, crimes happened in there many times, etc. So I think I would vote that that tunnel suck and uh, maybe consider putting up bridges like you would see in some of the larger U.S. cities. You'll see bridges going over uh, intersections or parts of uh, parts of the city and everything. And that way, anybody who's crossing uh, a junction or in need of using that, that, that pathway would be actually using a bridge, and you're much more visible. So you don't get that break from uh, being rained or snowed on, but then at least when you're going over this bridge you're completely visible to uh, people who could help you if there is somebody hanging out on that bridge. And then I guess one last uh, one last note is uh, go Rangers, go. <laughs> All right, Dave. I love the last note. I love the last note. Well done, sir. And I guess if we could keep the bridge accessible, so maybe we slope it, I'm thinking, without stairs, Right, it's a sloped up, and that would still be difficult for somebody uh, in a wheelchair or something like that. But still, I, I hear where you're coming from, and that you know what? It reminds me of a, a walk I took when I was in Sudbury with the Rangers, go Rangers, go, a couple of years ago, and I found myself in a, a tunnel, getting around or under. I don't know. I was figuring it out with my my phone leading me to where I had to go, and it was obvious. Not only did it did it smell of urine, but there was some paraphernalia left behind that made it obvious what had happened or had been happening there recently. So I, I get the point. I, I really do. And uh, thanks for raising it on the show. We'll see what happens with the roundabout at Franklin and Saginaw Parkway. An update from the City News Center, and then let's get some reaction to the cap on international students. We'll speak with an international student and the Migrant Workers Alliance as we continue with the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News. As you know, Canada's immigration minister announced earlier this week that this country would reduce the number of new international student permits by 35% next year. And because this new cap on international student permits is going to be applied sort of on a per capita basis, depending on which province is allowing the most student permits, it will have a proportional impact. So here in Ontario, for example, it will look and feel like a 50% 
reduction in the number of international student permits. And this is in an effort to kind of get a handle on something that is running amok in some ways. Harleen is an international student uh, enrolled at Conestoga College in Kitchener and joins us for a conversation. Harleen, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Good. Can you share with us, Harleen, a little bit of your experience as an international student at, at Conestoga College? What is the academic experience like for you? So, to be honest, being an international, uh, especially in our college, it's been a good experience because you get like a lot of opportunity, especially being in a like a public public college, right? Public school. Uh, you get a, like a more opportunity, you know, you have the right school and you get like provided by the great facilities, you get the insurance, so you get a, like a, a lot of opportunity for your co-op and everything. Have you had any difficulty when it comes to finding housing? Um, to be honest, yes, it was a hustle for us to find a, like a house as a public colleges and uh Private colleges are offering to the international students to come to their country. And so having a lot of students, um, there is a, like a huge problem for the housing as we wanted to rent it out. And they asked for like, uh, if the, like there is a, like a specific, uh, if we talk a lot about like a half, about uh, like a room, they are asking us for like 700 bucks because there is like a, like a, a lot of people, but we have limited housing. So. This is like a hustle for us, but at the same time, uh, we have to go through it. So you just accept it as something that comes with being an international student? Yeah, hustle comes with it. But to be honest, uh, you choose it, right? So you have to overcome it. But at the same time, if I look into the Canadians, right? Um, You are born and brought up over here. You pay the taxes to the government and you're still not getting the opportunity you wanted to. For example, uh, York University uh, are giving the more seats to the international students as compared to the Canadian students, which is wrong. But as uh, international students, I truly accept that this is wrong to the Canadian people. And I truly believe that the cap on the international students, uh, which has been put, I truly respect that decision because... Now they will be accepting only the candidates which are like more for like hair to study as uh, there was like some of the private schools as that school are like not having uh, so many activities. You know, you're paying like 20,000 bucks and you just are, there is just a one building and uh, I don't think that's a more deserving. And some of the uh, international students, like I wouldn't be biased or something, but some of the like international students doesn't know how to speak or something, but they're here, but they have see someone else opportunity, someone else uh, Canadian's opportunity. So you think that the new cap that we're talking about on the number of international student visas uh, accepted is a is a good idea? Yeah, I truly accept it. But uh, some uh, students do have problems, but I think it just depends on the scenario and their opinion about that. But I truly accept this is a good uh, opportunity. What was it, Harleen, that attracted you to Conestoga College? Um. So Conestoga College is a 
is one of the like um, into the southern Ontario where I see like there is a like not a lot of international students as compared to the GTA area has like a more international students. Oh, I wanted to study into a remote area where I couldn't uh, have like a lot of uh, diversity rather than having my own country people because I'm here to look forward for diversity to meet new people to know their culture and uh, Conestoga College is known for their peace and uh, maintaining their reputation so that's why I wanted to go for Conestoga College and uh, my brother has studied over here so it was a good experience with him so I was like why not try this one what is your brother doing now um, so he's into real estate right now. And what do you hope to do after graduation? As I'm doing broadcasting right now, so I wanted to become a camera operator and editor. I ho- you don't want to take my job, do you, Harleen? <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> my BS not. <laughs> so would, how would you describe your experience as an international student so far? To be honest, uh, it has been hustle. So first, renting out a house. Then you have to look after the grocery and everything. Uh, then there is a, like, a GR, like, GR buses. Like, you have to go, right? So in 2022, uh, I came over. And we used to get, like, seated in the buses. But right now, it just, whenever the bus comes, it's, like, awful, like, so you have to wait like one hour and you still get the house uh, like uh, like buses full of like passenger. You have to book Uber. That's a hustle too. And uh, But it's not been a hustle because we have like a 40 hours of work. Like you can work more than 40 or like more than 20 hours in a week. But we are here to study. But the cost of living is too expensive as compared to back in 2016-17. Uh, do you get any help from the school? Uh, so to be honest, uh, no. I like your attitude, Harleen, when you say it's a hustle, but you accept that. You knew that if you want to be successful in your studies and in your future career, you have to work hard. Yeah, it's true, it's true, though. But uh, to be honest, uh, if you're choosing another country, you need to know what are the pros and what are the cons. Like, you need to know, oh, this this things I'm going to be suffering, and this uh, is the word uh, from that suffering, I will get that that uh, outcome, and I will be able to have like a good life. But uh, to be honest, having so many international students trying for like uh, so having the same opportunity is saving like everyone is here for their betterment, right? And the people overstaying here have wanted to have their own better man. But the thing is that so many things are clashing towards each other and it's getting affected to their cost of living as well. Would you recommend being an international student in Ontario at Conestoga College? Would you recommend that to somebody else? To be honest, uh, it's going to be a diplomatic statement, but I will say yes, if you are a person with a good uh, academic record. For example, there is a student who has a 6.5 bands and there is a one student who have eight bands. Which one you would recommend to come to Ontario? I would say the one who have the more bands. Because if you have the, like, it just depends on the, like, academic performance. Harleen, thank you very much for joining the show today and good luck with your studies. Thank you so much. Have a great day, Mike. You too. Bye-bye.
Harleen is an international student who's attending Conestoga College and says, yes, she would recommend the experience to a fellow international student if they have the academic track record to support it. But make no mistake, it's a hustle, in Harleen's words. She also supports the idea of a cap on the number of international student permits issued because there are too many bad actors out there, which we've heard about, schools that are taking advantage of the international students and essentially just turning them into diploma mills. So from the perspective of an international student to the perspective of a migrant worker, how do migrant workers, or at least one organization representing migrant workers, feel about the proposed cap on international student permits. We'll have that conversation next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. We just heard from Harleen, who is an international student studying at Conestoga College. And she says, it's a hustle and housing is not easy to secure. It's also very expensive, along with the cost of groceries and crowded buses. (laughs) But it is an experience she would recommend to somebody with the right academic track record. We spoke to Harleen in the wake of Immigration Minister Mark Miller's announcement Monday morning that Canada is going to reduce the number of new international student permits by 35% next year. Sarome Rowe is an organizer with the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change and joins us to talk about it. Sarome, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for making the time. What do you think of the immigration minister's announcement to reduce the number of international student visas? There are a couple of things. I mean, the recent announcement is attempting to address a crisis, but it's missing the mark, actually, and putting the wrong target on international students. The crisis isn't in so-called runaway numbers. It's in runaway profiteering. Right. Um, and they, and it's not going to reducing the number of people, of international students, of families is not actually going to solve the issue that we're facing around affordability and how there simply isn't enough investment in things like education and housing um, and making sure that working class families, including international students and their families, can afford to live here. Right. And in addition to the two year cap, Minister Miller's announcement separate specifically families of international students who are who are at college and undergraduate level programs and this is not right it's cruel i think a lot of us out there know that families should be together it's just better for society when families are together um there's also a second uh, a third part of his announcement which is an issue which is that education institutions are in these um what's called these public-private partnerships that have grown exponentially in Ontario, will be able to get study permits but not postgraduate work permits. So this means that international students can study and pay very expensive tuition fees at these institutions, 
only to find that when they graduate, they will no longer be able to get a work permit and be able to stay in the country. Um, and it's going to make um, it easier for recruiters and agents to continue to funnel in international students into what the minister himself called puppy mills. And I think, you know, we know if there's a puppy mill, we would see it, we would close it down, right? But that's not what the announcement is doing. And it, the motivation behind it is that it's profitable, right? So if we really care about the well-being of international students and also care to um, address the larger issue of affordability that all of us are being squeezed to, we have to make sure there isn't runaway profiteering in this country. And so how would you propose, Sarome, that we crack down on that then, the runaway profiteering? Should we close some of these private colleges? I mean, I think there needs to be a single system, right? Um, because we're blaming international students um, who and immigrants who have been scapegoated for the housing crisis, scapegoated for the crisis of low wages when it's actually other people who are responsible, isn't going to fix the failures, um, particularly of this massive expansion of these get-rich institutions, right? So there needs to be a single system in which if schools are eligible for study permits, they should also be eligible for postgraduate work permits. And if the school is simply not good enough for a postgraduate work permit, then it has to be closed down, right? And I want to note that also this has just been an emotional roller coaster of these twists and turns and going off the tracks that um, international students are facing with these weekly announcements that are um, blaming them, right? And so we're calling on Minister Miller to reverse uh, minimally the decision to separate working class families and to ensure that anybody who is um, already in the country or has applied for a study permit at these public-private partnership institutions are grandfathered in and have access to postgraduate work permits. And of course, to solve the larger issue, we need to ensure that everybody has fair fairness and equal rights in this country. And the way to ensure that is through permanent resident status for all. Does the ability to work 40 hours per week for an international student help alleviate some of the costs associated with being here? I mean, you know, I'm sure we just heard from Harleen and we hear from every international student that they're not only studying full time, but having to um, uh, work multiple jobs in order to keep up with how expensive international tuition fee has been in the country. I mean, I just want to spell it out, right? The average to international tuition fee for international students for college is $15,000 compared to $3,000 for domestic students. That's five times the amount. And for university fees, the average fees in Ontario is $45,000. I think most of us can't even fathom how much we have to work and sacrifice and get loans in order to uh, make this amount of money. And that's just tuition fees alone. It doesn't include everything else. Um, and so um, at the same time, there has been this massive deregula- deregulation of public education in Ontario and in the country that is hurting all of us, whether we are domestic or migrants, whether we are Canadian citizens or permanent residents, because what it does is deteriorate the quality of our education. We don't, um, we don't have public education in the country when there are so many students who are struggling just to make ends meet. And so this is a shared call for not only migrants and international students, but also for permanent residents and citizens to come together to really look up and say, we deserve more investment in public services, in public infrastructure. And we can't let these people who want to make money off of our shared crisis uh, to continue and go unchecked. 
Sarome, I appreciate you making time for the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sarome Rowe, an organizer with the Migrant Workers Alliance for Change, sharing her perspective on the recently announced cap on international study permits. We also heard from Harleen, who is an international student today at Conestoga College in Kitchener. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Well, no doubt we struck a chord. Quickly, before we get to the City News Centre for an update, Dan, good morning. Good morning, Mr. Farwell. How are you? Oh, my good friend, Dan. I'm really good, thanks. How are you? Good, good, good. Listen, I just want to take a different tact on this. First of all, I I see what they're trying to get at, but I think it's a a short-sighted plan. Uh, To me, the other issue is attached to this is if you drive through the university district, how many supermarkets, convenience stores, and restaurants are geared to our international students? So if we cut that by 50%, what are we doing to the local economy? And what are we doing to the tax base in Waterloo? So, again, there are much bigger issues than, than the ones that have already been described. Dan, thank you very much for that perspective. I know Dan speaks from experience in that university district as a professor. And I just had a colleague pop into the studio during that break, too. His son taking an engineering course at York University, paying 16500 for tuition. An international student in the same course paying 55000 in tuition. If you start reducing those numbers of international students and the associated tuition, where is the money coming from? They are, these are complex problems to solve. An update from the City News Centre and then how a dog is helping keep trails clean in Guelph. I hope you'll like the story as much as I do. That's coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. City News 570. I want to tell you a little story about Jasper. And I think I should emphasize little because Jasper is anything but little. A three-year-old, 114-pound <laughs> Great Bernese who is the catalyst for getting trails cleaned up in the fine city of Guelph. Lisa Hearn and Gabriel Navarrete are Jasper's parents and join us on the program this morning. Lisa, Gabriel, good morning. Hi. Good morning. <laughs> it's great to have you on the show and get the chance to share this story. Lisa, I'll, I'll start with you here. Uh, what is it that Jasper does or how is it that Jasper inspires you to keep the trail system a little cleaner in the city of Guelph? Yeah, thank you. Well, we started noticing when we were going out for our daily walks and hikes, because we're always out probably about four times a day with this guy, that there's <laughs> So much litter scattered around the trails and in the public spaces of Guelph. So after seeing it for so long, we just decided to try to take action and clean it up ourselves and use Jasper as kind of the spokesperson to help motivate others. I love it. And that's what really caught my attention. No disrespect, but I I absolutely love dogs. And Jasper's role on this is central to the story for me. And, And Gabriel, I wonder, I mean, 114 pounds, I'm sure aside from just Jasper being the reason you get out and move around a little bit more, I, I think he could be put to some pretty good use here, couldn't he? Actually, he's start, he's noticed how much, how often we're picking up garbage now, so he actually starts to point out garbage as well while we're on walks. <laughs> so that's pretty awesome. <laughs> Uh, what? And he makes he makes a wonderful guard dog for our home too. <laughs> does he does he act in any way part Sherpa and all of this to help you cart your uh, 
bags back to a, a garbage receptacle somewhere? Yeah, so actually we do tie it on him um, pretty often now. And we thought he wouldn't uh, like to have the bag on his side. But as long as it's not like massively full, he actually doesn't mind having the bag attached to his harness. Uh, but we're in the works of creating a special harness for him that will keep the bags a, a little outwards from his body uh, so he can actually just always be part of the carrying of the trash. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, as much as I love what you're doing, it, it disheartens me a little bit, if I'm being honest, that there is so much work to be done in this regard. How does it make you feel to find as much garbage, litter, as you do along the trails? Yeah, it's definitely concerning. We're 23 days into this goal that we started this year, and we are surprised that we have not gone a day yet without finding litter on our walks. So it is really a problem, and we've noticed that there's been an increase in the amount of litter on the trails and the public spaces since the pandemic. So that's, again, one of our huge motivators is just to try to get the messaging across that if we all work together, we can create change and we can keep our cities a little cleaner. And also we can kind of educate others as to why littering is bad. You mentioned being 23 days into that goal, Lisa. What is the goal that you've set for yourself? So each and every day of this year, we will be collecting litter um, on our walks. So we are committed to 365 days of this litter cleanup. And we are posting images of Jasper's cleanup efforts every single day on a Facebook group that we've created and also his Instagram account. Gabriel, has have you given any thought to expanding your efforts beyond? I mean, 365 days of garbage collection is, is a ton and it's a noble goal. But have you ever thought of, geez, there might be trails beyond Guelph that could use some help from Jasper? Yeah, we were actually going to mention that, that we do a lot of camping and traveling through Ontario. Um, so we do intend to do it wherever we go. Um, and we also go to other conservation areas, not only Guelph, but it's definitely something that we are already doing. Uh, we also have been in talks with uh, Guelph University. Someone at Guelph University reached out to us who already does litter campaigns there. Um, so we're going to try to increase the... Uh, the campaigns being done at the university because we've found that the university students are actually one of the biggest litterers in this town, unfortunately. Lisa, how can we follow along with the exploits of you and Gabriel and, of course, Jasper? Well, the main way would be through uh, the Facebook group that we've created. So the name of the group is Clean Up Your Path. Um, and we've also uh, targeted his Instagram account, which is Jasper um, the Great Bernese. It's at Jasper dot the Great Bernese. And we've also uh, been using the hashtag clean up your path to kind of get people to uh, join in and and uh, tag their pictures with that hashtag. So we can kind of accumulate some momentum in it being a movement and not just our movement. <laughs> <laughs> Jasper looks like a sweet boy. I love what he's doing and, and what you're doing with him, what he's inspired you to do. Uh, keep up the great work and, and thank you both very much for making time for the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Have, have a great day. Bye-bye. You as well. Take care. Lisa Hearn and Gabriel Navarrete, they are the pet parents to Jasper, the three-year-old, 114-pound great 
Bernese <laughs> on Instagram, Jasper dot the great Bernese. And then on Facebook, you can find their group at clean up your path, P A T H clean up your path. And they've committed Lisa and Gabriel and Jasper to 365 days of litter cleanup around the trails in Guelph. And it sounds like there are plans to expand even further. I think it's great. And I can't wait to meet Jasper someday. Maybe I'll find uh, the same path to walk with Rosie the Pandemic Pup someday and they can meet one another because they look perfect. Well, Jasper is about three times the size of Rosie, but Jasper looks pretty friendly too. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Well, if ever there was a bittersweet moment, I think this might be it. I have long known about and had a wee bit of an association with the Kitchener Sports Association or the KSA. I'm sure many of you are familiar with, if not the work the KSA does, at least familiar with the KSA itself. And it is celebrating 80 years this year, which is certainly the sweet part of this conversation with the current and returning president of the KSA, Norm Foss, who joins me in studio. Can we just start there real quick, Norm? Returning as president here in its yes. 80th year. Yes, uh, I was last president 30 years ago, and I'm uh, proud to be the president again. It's a real privilege for me to do it. I am, I guess, the face of a very good group of people all of whom are better than me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they say that's what great leaders do, right? Surround themselves with great people. Well, I've been very fortunate in that. I've made lifelong friends through Kitchener Sports Association and met so many wonderful and interesting people over the years. It's been a wonderful experience. You haven't, of course, been there the entire 80 years, but that is what we talk about here today. When you think of that milestone and the celebration that comes with reaching... 80 years. What do you reflect on, Norm? The people that I've met, the experiences that I've had, they've been really wonderful. I can remember back in the day hearing Buller Paganaw, a fellow who's passed many years ago at a KSA meeting, talk about having lunch at Gaudi's uh, with Jean Beliveau and Toe Blake. Amazing experiences. Uh, I couldn't have got that kind of experience anywhere else. And it was a lot of fun in the interim. And of course, over each of these past eight decades, the Kitchener Sports Association has stayed true to its mission in supporting youth, volunteers in sport, and providing scholarships as well. Very much so. We've we've, uh, contributed to probably every minor sport in town at one time or another, And it's been a real pleasure to see these young people progress in their uh, sporting activities. And we've helped with that. I I think the best story, if you have a minute, is with uh, uh, Lennox Lewis. I remember he and Arnie Beam came to one of our meetings. And apparently Lennox had beat the stuffing out of the bag at the the gym. And they needed a new heavy bag for Lennox to uh, practice on. And so we helped them with that. And... When Lennox had his first fight here in Kitchener, I don't know whether he made any money from that. I doubt it. But he paid back that money to, the, to us. I mean, what a class act. 
And that reflected our motto, which has always been true sportsmen make good citizens. And I, I thought really, he was a very nice young man to meet. We met him at 17 years old for the first time. And I haven't changed my mind on that one little bit. That is a great story. And just part of the celebratory aspect of reaching 80 years of existence. But yes. the, the bitter part of this bittersweet conversation, Norm, is that the Kitchener Sports Association, the KSA, has decided that 80 years in, along with marking that milestone this year, it's time to wind things down. Yes, that's correct. Like many other uh, volunteer organizations within the community, we're having trouble replacing ourselves. And we're of a vintage where we need replacing. (laughs) (laughs) And we're just not able to do that, both at a program level, and we run many programs, some of which you've mentioned, and uh, also at the administrative level, where when you have a corporation, uh, you need to have meetings and governance and all that sort of things. And we need to make sure that all those things are done correctly. And so far, so good. But we can see if we lose too many more of our present people, we'd be in trouble on that front. And we'd rather wind it up today rather than get in trouble down the road. And so that's what we're in the, um, what we're undertaking presently. Along with this motto that good sportsmen make good citizens, the Kitchener Sports Association, Norm, since its inception back in 1944, had a laser focus on helping the city of Kitchener achieve its goal of a new hockey arena. So even as the KSA winds up operations later this year, I think that legacy of the Memorial Auditorium certainly lives on. Thank you kindly. Yes, we've uh, contributed to that. We even put the ice-making equipment into the old annex, which no longer exists, and the audiovisual equipment into the teaching theater at the auditorium between the twin pads. And we also contributed significantly to the Activa sports complex. So our footprints across the city, and there are quite a few others in addition to that. So what happens this year? How do you wind down 80 years of good deeds and support for the local sporting community? Well, it's step by step. All of our programs are still presently running, but they will be wound up over the next oh, uh, several months. And like our scholarship program is still ongoing. Our volunteer recognition dinner for minor sports is still ongoing. These things will take place in the next few months, and then they will be sunsetted, as will the administrative part of our club as the corporation is wound up and the assets are distributed back into the community. And there are committees for all of these different events and happenings, and we hope to get through them towards the end of June this year. How does everybody feel about this? I think you summed it up with that one word, bittersweet. Yeah. We've loved our association. We like the people that we've been doing it with low these many years. I've been a member for at least 50 years, and it's been a wonderful experience. And I know that the other people feel similarly, but it's time. We need to do this, and we need to do it well. And are you confident that you've got the group in place that will help you do it well over the next six months? Oh, very much so. 
uh, highly competent and good people. We will not have a problem with this. We just need to stick to our knitting and get it done. (laughs) I have no doubt that you will, and I look forward to, uh, in the next several months, supporting in whatever way I can uh, Athlete of the Year, volunteer recognition, and anything else that comes up where I can lend some support as I've been privileged to do so in the past. We really appreciate that, Mike. And I look forward to seeing you at some of these events. As you said when you walked in here, Norm, isn't it nice that you and I can run into each other not at a hockey game? Yes, yes, (laughs) it is. We'll look forward to uh, the months ahead. And uh, a sincere congratulations on 80 years of terrific service to our community. Thank you kindly, Mike. We really appreciate your support. Norm Foss is the... President again returning. You said recycled earlier. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's the new. It's the it's the word of the uh, of the year. Really, we yes. we've been v- great at recycling in this community for many many decades yes. now, and we've recycled you as president. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Mike. Norm Foss, the president of the Kitchener Sports Association, winding down operations this year after eighty years of service to the community. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News five seventy and Rogers TV. Just ahead of an update from the City News Center, uh, Devin Robertson, our guy on the other side of the glass, I'm totally putting you on the spot here. But if our colleague here at the radio station, Dave Bossy, great guy, well, I'm not going to deny that. Oh, yeah, great guy. Great guy. Okay, so we agree on that. Yep. But if he came by and said, I made some cookies for you, oh. how quick would your hand reach for the cookie jar? <laughs> right? You see where I'm going with this? Uh, yeah, uh, you got to go with uh, a bit of a bit of delay, right? You, you can't just jam your hand in there. You also know, of course, like if it's got sugar, particularly if it's a cookie, I love it. Oh yeah, but Dave Bossy, <laughs> great guy. Is he a baker? I, you know, people have hobbies, talents. <laughs> he this, could be. This might be Dave's hidden talent. So <laughs> I did, I did procure a cookie Ooh. now. He insists it looks pretty good. It looks pretty good. But I wasn't sure about the ingredients. He insists his girlfriend Patty made them. So I I suppose I've never met Patty. (laughs) But I think even absent meeting her, I think I trust her more than I trust Dave. (laughs) What do you think? Okay, bottom line is you're on the hook. If this goes poorly for me, can you handle the next two hours of the show? I guess there's one way to find out. (laughs) Devin (laughs) Robertson is our guy on the other side of the glass, and he might be on this side of the glass soon enough. I'm going to try this cookie. You get this update from the City News Centre, and then it was the hottest year on record in Canada. How do you feel about that? We'll talk about it next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News. Don't let the deep freeze we just endured fool you. We are just emerging from the year 2023, which was the hottest year in history. And by the way, Canada might just be warming faster than any other place on Earth. Gordon McBean is a professor emeritus in the Department of Geography and Environment at Western University, joins us for a conversation. Gordon, good morning. Good morning to you. When I hear that 2023 was the hottest year in history, while I I don't dispute the data, I do reflect back on the number of climate conferences that we've been reporting on and and the fact that 
in 2015 with the Paris Climate Agreement, we signed on to the pledge to hold the increase in global average temperature to below two Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And and now almost 10 years later, are, are we failing in this regard? Is it not working? Well, there's not enough of the emission reductions that are needed to take place to keep to that target. And I should say that the agreement of the Paris Agreement was that we should strive to achieve a maximum climate change due to human activities of 1.5 degrees C. And what we saw in year 2023 was a 1.48 degrees C warming already. So we're basically at 1.5, which was the sort of the hypothetical objective in a sense of the Paris Agreement. And uh, and the most scientists who are really working on this think that 2024 will be even warmer still, just from things ways things are starting already. Where does Canada fit into the picture here, Gordon? Well, first of all, in the terms of the impacts, the climate changes geographically in different ways around the world. The 1.48 degrees C, let's say 1.5 in round numbers, was the global average. And the globe then also includes, of course, all the ocean areas, which are warming much slower. And so when you look at the Canadian geography and see how how much the warming there is, that Canada is warming overall at about twice as fast as the globe. So when we talk about 1.5, that means about 3 degrees C averaging across Canada. And the Canadian Arctic is warming even faster, 3 to 4 times faster, because of the role of way in which the melting of the snow and ice turns off the reflections that were taking place. And so the solar radiation that was coming in that previously got reflected back off the snow and ice is now being absorbed. And that will happen even more so in the future as we go ahead. What is the impact in Canada particularly on our Arctic? Well, it's having quite significant effects on the Arctic people, the populations who... I mean, I've read stories and heard about people who have been, you know, trying to make their way on what used to be normally their their ice road, uh, and that ice road is now melted enough that they can't transport on it the vehicles that they used to be able to, trucks and things, bring food and other things down between the communities. And it's also affecting the natural life species, uh, making certain species that were, well, they say, hunted or fished for, uh, are less available and that kind of thing. So the impacts on the Canadian Arctic people, the Inuit and, and others, has been is significant and is projected to be even more so. And we're seeing that in other high art, altitude, high latitude countries. Sorry, and uh, the impacts of climate change we need to recognize is that it depends upon the way in which the climate system functions. And the reality is that we're going to be warming for at least, even if we were to cut our greenhouse gas emissions to zero, say, tomorrow, we'd still warm for at least four or five decades because the oceans are a huge mass of water which takes a long time to warm up, and it hasn't warmed up to the extent that would be in equilibrium with the amount of greenhouse gas that's in the atmosphere and the heating that results from that. Given that there are other nations that emit far more than Canada, I mean, how do we square that circle? I'm sure you've heard it as often as I have that, you know, what can Canada really do? What's What does it matter what we do here 
you know, in southwestern Ontario, when China, for example, emits far more than us as a nation? Yeah, well, there's two aspects to climate change in terms of the strategies for action. The first one that most people talk about, and what you were just talking about, is reducing our greenhouse gas emissions to reduce or prevent as much as possible the changing warming climate. But the other reality is that we have to adapt to that reality that the climate is changing, will continue to change, and this is resulting in more heat, more extreme weather events, uh, and uh, the risks of flooding and and sea ice ice melting and also the ocean surface as it gradually warms up leads to uh, sea level rise, which affects our coastal communities. And I grew up in Vancouver and think of the airport there, uh, is right on, you know, will be underwater, could be underwater in a, uh, unless they take the right actions to put in appropriate dikes and things. So that there is this need for strategies to reduce the exposure and the vulnerability of our ourselves, our, our agricultural systems, our transportation systems in a ways that they're not as impacted as they would otherwise be. Yeah, you kind of read my mind on that point, because when you were mentioning earlier that even if we were to go to zero emissions tomorrow, the planet's going to continue warming for the next four or five decades. And that says to me that along with continued efforts to lower emissions, we have to make our communities more climate resilient. We have to begin that process of adapting. That's right. Climate resilience is the a very important thing in the terminology. Not a lot, all people fully understand what resilience means in this context, so I sometimes don't use that term, although I, I'm the lead author of a report that was produced about 2021 uh, in which we talked about how do, what, is the, what do we know and what we don't yet know about how to build climate-resilient communities. And we're taking a lot of effort to try and work with communities. I've been holding meetings with Rotary Club groups across southern Ontario, uh, and uh, other groups of people who are interested and want to, to sort of help organize the action to build our resilience so that our communities become not as impacted as they would otherwise be by the changing climate. And this means we also have to help poorer people and you know, communities with less resources in order to help them do it as well because the, uh, you know, the, the city of London where I live has... You know, has taken some actions and has its strategy. I think we need to get these strategies to go from strategies to actually putting in place these things with full action. And that's what we need to do on this building resilience, uh, reducing the vulnerability. And, you know, nice homes you have along the edge of that flowing river, you have to be very careful. Is that river going to flood? regularly in the, in the future as we get more heavy precipitation events because that's what happens when you get a warmer climate. And just recently, I, just yesterday, I was reading a report from the one of the big insurance companies that puts out a global report and they were summarizing things and they said the numbers were that extreme weather events, mainly in North America, were causing so many $100 million disasters and things, and the numbers were in the billions of total, and these were U.S. dollars where they put it. So it's a lot of money, and that's just what the insurance companies are paying to fix these things or to help fix the things after they've happened, whereas a lot of people, unfortunately, don't get covered by insurance on these things, and that's a real problem. 
It's a very interesting conversation, and I'm glad you could be a part of it today. Gordon, thank you very much for joining the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's important that you people keep talking about it because we got to inform and we're appropriately warn all citizens so that we can get action taken to work for the best of all of us. Absolutely, and you've done a great job of that today. Thank you again. Thank you. Gordon McBean is with the Canadian Foundation for Climate and Atmospheric Sciences, a professor emeritus in the Department of Geography and Environment at Western University. Along with efforts to lower emissions, we must build climate resilience into our communities. We'll get your thoughts with your calls right after this time out. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. The reality is that we're going to be warming for at least, even if we were to cut our greenhouse gas emissions to zero, say, tomorrow, we'd still warm for at least four or five decades because the oceans are a huge mass of water which takes a long time to warm up and it hasn't warmed up to the extent that it would be in equilibrium with the amount of greenhouse gas that's in the atmosphere and the heating that results from that. And for that reason, Gordon McBean tells us, we must build climate resiliency into our communities. Gordon is a professor emeritus in the Department of Geography and Environment at Western University. He joins us to talk about the hottest year on record on this planet, which was last year, 2023. And Canada, don't you know, is warming faster than any other place. Let's go to the phones. Chris, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? Doing pretty good. I, I hear all these this climate talk Canada is warming up faster than the rest of the world. Is that because one of the largest countries with the largest pop, one of the largest populations is, you know, like located right below us? So that you know, if you watch air masses flow coming up the west, the east coast, they're blowing it from the heat from Florida up and into Canada. So we have this massive population that's below us that is emitting a pollutant and is coming into our air mass. And creating warmer temperatures, and I'm sure that goes across all, throughout the whole world. But let's talk about other purpose people's pollution that affects our climate. Yeah, and we we touched on that in the conversation with Gordon a moment ago, Chris. Particularly when you look at a place like China, and then of course other parts of the less developed world, and we can absolutely look at nations which are emitting far more than we are here in Canada. I'm not even going to hazard a guess at the science and and what climate scientists are studying and seeing in the data. I would just say I I don't love those arguments because I think it makes us less willing to engage in more positive behaviors at home. I figure we can all still do something to help, right? I think tree farms would be the ideal solution. Sure. I mean, the, the more we, the, we, we all know trees take a lot longer to grow. And, and so we're cutting down absolute mature trees. And I don't think we're planting them nearly as fast as we're taking them out of the ground. I love the idea. I, I really liked the idea when it was proposed by our federal government. What was it? Two billion trees were going to be planted and uh, we're not even close, <laughs> like not even close to meeting the commitment. So we keep opening up like I understand we, we have a housing crisis and we have land. We need land for housing. But why are we talking about opening up actual tree lots like instead of cornfields? We all know what that does for the land. Why don't we make a tree tree farms and have incentives for those who want to switch over well because you can't live in a tree house i guess no i don't mean 
taking land land for building that should then should be tree farms. I mean, taking cornfields and making them tree farms. What about the food? Uh, we all know that corn is a small portion of what we actually. Corn right. goes a lot more towards energy. Chris, appreciate the call and the ideas. As always, I'm going to keep trying to do the best that I can do. Although, when it comes to that, and and we know, because this came across my radar yesterday, and and thanks to Ivan for sharing it, because I kind of love it. Uh, Even though there is a mandate here to make all vehicles by 2035 electric, I'm not there. I'm not there with my confidence in, quite frankly, the technology. And I know those of you who are already EV converts will tell me I've got nothing to worry about. And I get that, and and I respect that. I hope you can respect my reluctance, though, too. And then, of course, you know I'm as cheap as the day is long, and until you start bringing down the cost of those EVs, I'm not all that interested in making the move. But connected to that, this week, uh, the region of Waterloo is going to be unveiling its first-ever electric bus. So that's going to be on display at the GRT uh, Northfield Drive Storage and Maintenance Facility on Friday. It's cool. It's a shiny new toy. Let's show it off. It's going to be one of 11 electric buses that are going to be added to our fleet this year. However, there is a cautionary tale out of North Carolina, which in 2018 bought five electric buses, millions of dollars invested, and 60% of the fleet, so three out of the five, are now sitting idle due to a combination of software issues and mechanical problems. One has had a broken door since late last summer, and it can't be replaced. So you spend millions on these electric buses in North Carolina, and the buses, at least not all of them, are running. Let's hope we have a better percentage of success with the 11 electric buses we're adding to the fleet here in the region. The first of our 11 electric buses is going to be unveiled on Friday. Meantime, in North Carolina, three of the five electric buses ain't going nowhere or taking anybody any place. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Just over a minute away from your update in the City News Center, before noon today, it is the year of the dragon, at least almost. We'll talk about the upcoming Chinese New Year and how our local Chinese community is celebrating. Also, after the update from the City News Center, we're getting awfully close to April the 1st. No, I'm not asking you to begin planning your pranks, but those who work in the beer industry in particular, feel as though they are being pranked every April the 1st when that alcohol escalator tax kicks in again and the tax on alcohol escalates. It's a tough spot to be in for beer makers, particularly those in the craft brewing sector. So we've got that on the horizon. And even though it's further afield, It'll probably be a couple of years before we start seeing beer in corner stores and convenience stores, for example. But that is also on the horizon. So what is this meaning to our craft brewing industry? We'll check in on that just after 
the update from the City News Centre. And don't forget, between noon and 1, so beginning in about 30 minutes, you will have your open line opportunity during the 12 o'clock talkback hour to give us a call and have a chat about what's on your mind. All of this part of the Mike Farwell Show this morning on City News 570. Well, we know that changes are coming to the alcohol industry here in Ontario with options being opened up in convenience stores, gas station outlets to sell prepackaged alcoholic drinks, including, of course, beer. And the more things change in that regard, the more they also stay the same (laughs) because there is also that uh, escalator tax which is going to uh, kick in again this April and make it that much more difficult, right? When you're talking about margins and what you are selling your alcoholic beverage for, that tax just gets included in it and perhaps becomes a disincentive to the buyer. Graham Kobayashi is the founder of Counterpoint Brewing in Kitchener and joins us for a conversation. Graham, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing? Not too bad, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Before we talk about the upcoming uh, escalator tax, which I know can be a a bit of a thorn in the side of somebody like you who is in the beer-making business, what about the option of expanding the number of places that you can put your great beer up for sale? If it's going to be opened up to convenience stores, et cetera, is this a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... uh you know, we've seen the temporary change of uh, sales regulations during COVID for bars and restaurants to be able to sell uh, beer to go. And I, I think this is a great um, continuation of the, uh, I guess, a relaxation of, of uh, regulations as well. Does it put more of a, an onus on you, though, to brew more? Because one of the great things about our craft breweries is the fact that they, you know, make in small batches. Are you going to does it change your business model to perhaps keep up with more demand? Yeah, we'll be looking at uh, increasing production slightly over the next couple of years anyways. Um, you know, we've been held back a bit uh, due to COVID and, and uh, debt accumulated there. But um, we're looking at increasing production while uh, not, uh, you know, no, no, no sacrifice to the product itself, really. It'll be just slightly larger batches and uh, just make things a bit easier for us when it comes to production. You mentioned the you know accumulated debt coming out of COVID, et cetera. The SIBA loan uh, repayment deadline just passed. How did that impact you at CounterPoint? Uh, yeah, I was required to uh, well, take an, another loan to cover the cost, which you know essentially I, I suppose saved us uh, $20,000 in the long run, but uh, in the short term means uh, more loan payments and um, yeah, just more debt. <laughs> Yeah, and that's never a, a comfortable position to be in as a business owner. Yeah, it's it's, it's a little more pressure um, to continue just being you know really smart about where our money is going, and of course um, more incentive to uh, yeah to try and, and stay busy and uh, produce more and um, get more people uh, into our tap room. What do you do to that end, Graham, to stay busy and to differentiate differentiate yourself? In a, in a pretty crowded market in the craft beer space, I know that about ninety percent of your sales come from you know the people that are in your tap room coming through your door. 
Yeah, it's really important to us for people to come in. Um, it's, it uh, helps us uh, really relay, you know, what we're here for, why we have a tap room, and why, and why we're making beer. Um, a big part of it is the variety of beer, anything from light pilsners and lagers to, uh, you know, IPAs. And, and currently we've got a, you know, beer with a zucchini bread in it and, uh, you know, stout with Jamaican style with um, sun-dried sorrel and allspice and that type of stuff. So variety is big for us, uh, as well as the, the community we've built over the years. We've got a, a great group of uh, dedicated customers, and, and uh, we're slowly growing that as well. I love the idea of that Jamaican stout. I mean, do you sit around, do, do these ideas come to you in the middle of the night? Do you keep a, pen, a pad by your bedside or something? Well, that one is full credit to our, uh, a friend of ours, Tennille Warren, who we've worked with uh, before on, on uh, some recipes, definitely Jamaican-inspired. And um, the, the zucchini one, I worked with uh, Fertile Ground Farms to uh, use some of their excess, excess squash and, <laughs> uh, and uh, put it to good use this way. I know also that you've got uh, food pairings thanks to a new pop-up pizza place, and you try to bring entertainment into CounterPoint as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, our um, partnership with uh, uh, Pizza Farm just up the road is great, so people can actually sit down, order pizza in the tap room, and, and have it delivered about 20 minutes later, hot and fresh and delicious. And then, yeah, our tiny tap room concerts are, have been a great hit, so uh, just an intimate, interactive type uh, show with uh, some local artists, and we have one coming up February 29th. Not to uh, not to be all doom and gloom on you here, Graham, but we are into a new year, which means that escalator tax, which kicks in every year or escalates again, I guess, every year on April the 1st. How does that impact somebody in your business? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, for us, the uh, the tax is we're in the lowest bracket of production. So we have a, you know, a production bracket of zero to 2000 hectoliters. We're not even close to that ceiling there. So we do have the lowest uh, tax uh, per hectoliter brewed uh, in our brewery. Um, being a small producer, you know, when you get up to huge breweries, they're paying about 30 bucks uh, a hectoliter. Uh, so it affects us in a very uh, small way. I mean, we're already paying, you know, a bunch of uh, taxes uh, every month. Um, you know, it always hurts a bit, but it's not too, too bad for us. It's actually one of the, you know, the, I guess the the only um, pro when it comes to the scale of economy of being a small brewery. You know, everything else costs us so much because we're ordering so little, whether it's uh, packaging or ingredients. Um, you know, we don't benefit from, from any discount there for, for quantities, but uh, I guess in this case, it, it, uh, it's... Uh, very fair to us. What's it like in the craft beer space these days, Graham? I mean, did it change dramatically uh, post-COVID with some maybe having to close down? We know there's been, I mean, I've often referred to it as an explosion in the craft beer scene, which is, I love because I I really enjoy my craft beer, but it sometimes seems like a a pretty crowded place to try to make a living. What's the market like these days? Yeah, the market is, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's, I think right now it's a very dynamic time uh, for many craft brewers. Uh, to be honest, the ones that, you know, I speak with uh, in our community and, and outside, it's, it's, it's a bit tough. Um, you know, we've, we've lost some momentum. I think the explosion brought us to a, a point where, you know, we're reaching a, a little bit of a saturation in the market. Um, and then along with, with COVID breaking up, 
uh, you know, the momentum that and the excitement that that going to breweries had um, uh, for a lot of people. Uh, we're gaining some back. Uh, you know, we're getting a bit busier, and so that that in part feels good. But you know, with the uh, the everlasting um, uh, debt payments that can that continue, and of course. Y- y- the fact that dozens of breweries have closed in you know, 2023 and we're probably looking at you know the same in 2024 it's uh just kind of a gray cloud hanging over a lot of our heads and, and just taking a lot more uh, out of us one of the things i've always admired about the industry you talk about you know conversations with other craft brewers in the area and beyond there does seem to be a real sense of camaraderie and collaboration as much as you're all competing in the same space. There's also just, I, I get the sense anyway, a sense of camaraderie amongst all the craft brewers. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it seems to be um, the case. You know, I see it a lot, little more in, in um, as well uh, lately in, in businesses outside of beer, but I think, uh, I think everybody looks to craft brewers to, uh, you know, be the, be the role model when it comes to collaborations, uh, whether it's, it's, collaborating on a beer or even just working together and, and brainstorming and, um, you know, just having open discussions about, about each other's, uh, you know, business and, and how things are going. Graham, keep up the great work at CounterPoint, and thanks very much for making the time for the show today. Thanks so much, Mike. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Graham Kobayashi is the owner of CounterPoint Brewing right there. I believe the address is Frederick, right where Frederick meets Victoria anyway. It fronts onto Victoria right there at the Frederick intersection. A great little spot and one of our local craft brewers that's still making their way in a pretty tough market. And it gets even tougher when that escalator tax kicks in again on April the 1st. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, the year of the dragon is almost upon us. We'll talk about it on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570 and Rogers TV. Well, the year of the dragon is almost upon us. And Gabriel C., who is the former vice president of the Central Ontario Chinese Canadian Cultural Centre, joins us on the program. Gabriel, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm fine, thank you very much. Beautiful day today. It is. It's always a nice day when it's not minus 20. Well, you know, I love minus 20. Come on, Gabriel. Because if I don't have bad winters, I will not appreciate good summers. <laughs> that is a very good way to look at it. Uh, is it too early for me to say gung ho fat choy? Oh, you can say gung ho fat choy even in October. Really? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> this is our culture. We want to wish everybody the best of luck and happiness and prosperity. The Chinese New Year begins February the 10th. This is the Year of the Dragon. What does that mean? Well, dragon is a historical... Um, it's not a myth. It's a symbol of the country, of the culture of, of China. And the dragon means the uh, the sun from heaven, you know. And the old emperors in the old days, they called themselves the son of God. So, uh, so dragon is a very important symbol for the Chinese culture. How do we celebrate the Chinese New Year here in the region? Well, we have a lot of festivities, good food, good everything. You want to visit friends. And the Chinese Ontario, uh, Central Ontario Chinese Cultural Centre, we have a gala 
on February the 25th, and this is one way to celebrate. And uh, yeah, just good food is uh, very much the same as uh, Christmas. You gather together, you visit families and friends, lots of good food, let the kids run around, and then you give you hand out uh, your gifts. How active is our local Chinese community with the cultural center? Uh, very active, actually. I've been on board for many years, and uh, actually I had I sat on the board for around 20 years or so. And every year we have many activities. Um, the community is very close to uh, to the center. Uh, every week we have um, activities. You have you have uh, ping pong and you have dancing at the uh, at the cultural center. So the community is very close to us. How how important is the New Year celebration in the Chinese calendar? Extremely important. It's as important as Christmas to Western culture. If I could put everything in a nutshell. Right. So do you exchange gifts as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just like you have Santa coming down through the, uh, the chimney. But instead of Santa, we have what we call the God of Fortune. And the God of Fortune will uh, carry a big bowl of gold, which is chocolate, essentially. You go around and you visit all the kids and then you give out what we call a red pocket. A red pocket is essentially a red envelope and you put a little bit of money in. So I remember when I was a kid, I so much looked forward to to New Year Day so I can uh, play uh, my tribute and greetings to all the elders and receive all those red pockets, which essentially are just gifts. I was going to ask about those red envelopes because I've seen them before. And is the red a symbol of good luck as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is the public invited to your gala on February the 25th? It, it is, it is, um, it is a function that we open to the public. Uh, the, good, the fortunate part for us is uh, all tickets are sold out right away. Wow. And every year we have this gala, and uh, before we even announce it, uh, most of the tickets are already pre-booked. And because we have limited space, and uh, this year, from what I was told by the board, that uh, it is already a sold-out event. In the old days, uh, we had at the university, we were up to more than 500 people, okay, for the gala. Uh, now, you know, with uh, post-pandemic, we try to scale back a bit uh, just to control, uh, better control. And uh, this year, we have it at the, uh, at the center. You know, roughly 125, 130 people would come. Uh, it is already sold out. Uh, fortunate on our part, but unfortunate for friends who are still trying to get tickets. So here I want to apologize for those that uh, could not get on um, on board with tickets. We'll have to watch more carefully next year when it comes around. Absolutely. For Absolutely. sure. Put that in your calendar. And every year we have the same gala. But because of the uh, the difference in calendar uh, of the lunar calendar versus the Western calendar. So New Year Day is different every year. Right. And and I know your gala also includes authentic Chinese dishes. Do you have a favorite, Gabriel? For me, anything that tastes good. <laughs> it's like my wife always says that, uh, you know, anything that is good for you uh, doesn't taste good. Anything that tastes good is not good for your body. But your Chinese food, you are different. It would taste good, and it's very good for you. Your wife is a very smart woman. Well, she knows how to dial and, and order pizza for us. 
<laughs> Gabriel, uh, thank you very much for joining the show uh, once again. Uh, Gong Hei Fat Choi. And thank you so much. Enjoy your celebrations. Thank you very much. Look Th- forward to talking to you again. Me too, Gabriel. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Gabriel Tsi is a board member with the Central Ontario Chinese Cultural Centre. And big surprise, sold out already for their gala on February the 25th as our local Chinese community welcomes the Year of the Dragon. The Chinese New Year falls on February the 10th this year and a couple weeks later, just like our Christmas celebration. Think of it that way. As the gifts are handed out, everybody gets together to share a meal, those little red pockets, the envelopes with gifts of money inside, etc. That's happening on February the 25th. But so you know, when it happens in a couple weeks' time, the Chinese New Year falls this year on February the 10th, and they usher in the year of the dragon. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Well, we have to get you to an update from the City News Centre. And sadly, it's the time of days for us to say farewell to our friends at Rogers TV Cable 20. Thank you to Robert and the entire team for producing the TV side of this show. They'll be back with us from 10 until noon tomorrow. But for now, we are going to continue with our 12 o'clock talkback hour. And that's our final hour together here on the radio side. Of the program. So stay with us. An update from the City News Center and then your phone calls during the 12 o'clock talk back open lines coming up. This is City News 570. Take out the papers and the trash. Or you don't get no spending cash. If you don't spread that kitchen floor, you ain't gonna rock and roll no more. Don't talk that. Just finish cleaning up your room. Let's see that dust fly with that broom. Get all that garbage out of sight. Or you don't go out Friday night. Don't talk that. In fact, this is the hour where we encourage you to do just that. Talk back. We open up the phone lines each and every day from noon until one so that we can hear from you. And boy, oh boy, have we had lots of things to talk about today, including the federal government's decision to appeal the ruling that said and said quite clearly that the use of the Emergencies Act in early 2022 to clear convoy protesters was unreasonable and that it infringed on protesters charter rights we've had some conversations about that we had some interesting conversations around pedestrian safety at roundabouts and how a proposed roundabout for the franklin and saginaw parkway area of cambridge right near saint benedict's catholic secondary school is likely going to include a pedestrian tunnel to keep pedestrians safer but then there have been concerns raised about what happens in that tunnel out of sight of public view This is where we're at, and that's just a couple of the conversations we had on the program today. 519-570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715. And, of course, as we've been reporting throughout the morning on City News 570, five members of the World Junior Hockey Team from 2018, that, of course, would be Canada's World Juniors, 
have been told to surrender to police in London, Ontario to face charges of sexual assault. And this is about as icky a story as ever there was from the moment it started to its latest installment, the latest chapter in that story. Ick, ick, ick. Let's go to the phones and start with Jersey Bill. Good afternoon, sir. Well, yes, yeah, sorry. I know there's a lot of Canadian news, but you know me, I got to bring in the the American politics. Let's talk about uh, Trump you know, taking New Hampshire. Yes, indeed. You know, I, I was able to get there twice, uh, uh, supporting different candidates back in the 90s. Uh, it, it's, what surprises me is that they, uh, it, it, that from what I could see on TV last night, it, it, the whole uh, uh, way that they operate things hasn't changed. It's a, it's a, it's a great place to start. I, I, and I think um, it was sort of interesting to see, yeah, Trump's really got that Republican nomination locked up. Uh, he's shown some weakness amongst independents, uh, which I think was votes good for, for Biden. I was a little upset that, that Biden, you know, sort of gratuitously said, well, we're, we're not going to start here. You know, he didn't do well in New Hampshire the last time. He's never done well in New Hampshire primaries when he's running for president. So he says, so I'm going to start in South Carolina, you know. Uh, I don't know how much that was him, but I, I would have, I would have cautioned against it because they need those four electoral votes, which have been trending uh, Democratic. But it seems as though the Democratic the, the voters generally aren't holding that against uh, Biden, and looks like uh, they'll probably break his way again, and he'll get those four necessary uh, electoral votes. Uh, it's interesting that the way Haley is going to stay in the race. I, I think she's sort of doomed for the nomination, but. Um, it, it, it certainly uh, seems that things have really, really sort of congealed. And you know, for all the people who don't want Biden versus Trump, that's what we'll be getting. That is what we'll be getting. It's more of a coronation than a nomination as far as I can see, Billy. And, and I wonder, truly, I mean, I, I know that you lean Biden's way, but do you think this is a race he can actually win a second time? Yes, I think it all will depend on whether or not uh, these independents who are going to, you know, they're going to go into the booth and say, you know, Trump, Biden, Trump, Biden. I, so many of them, even my, some of my elderly, especially my mother, who's no longer with us, but my aunt and uncle in uh, Ohio, who were probably reliable Republican uh, voters, just were turned off by Trump and everything he did uh, at the end of his term. So, uh, and, and actually, that's actually showing up in the polls. Um, Biden's having a little problem with the younger voters. But the older voters, who, as we know, are more reliable voters for the most part, are are um, are uh, breaking his way, uh, which is which is a good thing. So if if um, if an independent like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., which is sort of funny because you know he's certainly not the youth candidate, he's going to be 71 himself, and with his with his you know, and I don't like saying anything bad about somebody who has a medical condition, but that voice of his makes him sound 10 years older than he really is. So. Uh, and uh, that seems he seems to be the only one that has some sort of chance to throw a monkey wrench in this. But I I sort of think that um, I'd be surprised if the third party candidates would, would get to five percent all told, and uh, because it's going to be so serious in terms of who you're going to want to be president. And I think I think uh, the independents will decide this will will break for Biden. And uh, I'm hoping that it'll be more forty five fifty five than the fifty one forty seven it was the last time. All right, Billy, as always, appreciate the call and your perspective on politics in your home country. I think it's all but certain 
that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee stateside. So it will be another Biden-Trump presidential ticket or presidential election later this year. And I don't think it's a guarantee that Trump wins. It's a guarantee to me that he wins the Republican nomination. It's not a guarantee to me that he wins the presidency. But it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. It's going to be a close race, and we'll find out. But just take that a step further and and consider the possibilities, because right now in Canada, it certainly looks as though Pierre Poiliev is the favored federal leader. Just imagine a North America with Donald Trump and Pierre Polyev. That would be a dramatic political shift for this part of the world. Got an email from Christine DeMike at 570news.com. Says, I'm upset with you because you changed your time of rant or rave, question or comment, and I bet the flip side. <laughs> okay, first of all, we didn't change the time of rant or rave. We got rid of it. We didn't change the time of question or comment. We got rid of it. Because you see... We thought it would make sense to have something consistent that you could count on every day. When can you call in and air your views? When can you call into the radio station and have a conversation? You can do that every day from 12 until 1. It's called the 12 o'clock talkback hour. And we did not change anything about the flip side, which still happens on Thursday mornings at 1130. Right now, it's the 12 o'clock talkback on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Inbox, Mike at 570news.com. Find an email from Paul who writes, I think the safety aspect when it comes to roundabouts should place the onus on the pedestrian. Follow these rules when, as a pedestrian, you approach a roundabout crossing. Stop, look, point your intention, proceed when the way of oncoming traffic has stopped. For vehicles, assume everybody about to cross on a roundabout is a moron. Act accordingly. Paul, I appreciate the email. This is a, it's it's more inflammatory, I think, than you think or realize when you say that you believe the onus of responsibility should fall on the pedestrian because I've been in way too many a debate over the years when it comes to who carries the onus of responsibility because of course if you are the driver of the vehicle you can inflict far more damage when you make a mistake and as a human you are prone to making mistakes hopefully we engage in behaviors that limit the mistakes we make but we must recognize that when we are behind the wheel of a vehicle we are in a position to inflict far more damage on either property or worse our fellow humans, when we make mistakes. I still maintain that you can only be completely responsible, right? 
as a driver, I can only be 100% responsible for my actions. Just like the person walking can only be 100% responsible for their actions. There's no question that the impact of my mistakes is far greater when I'm driving a vehicle. But I don't think that means I have to be more responsible. I think that a pedestrian who is only 90% responsible also runs the risk of getting themselves hurt. And so they ought also be 100% responsible. But I don't think the onus of responsibility should be strictly on the pedestrian. And Terry writes to Mike at 570news.com, my thought would be ideally to have a pedestrian crosswalk with flashing lights halfway between the roundabouts at Saginaw and Franklin and Canamera and Franklin. Terry, thanks for the suggestion. I've long believed that we need to find a way to move pedestrian crossings out of the vehicle areas of roundabouts. What's being proposed for the roundabout that's going to be built at Franklin and Saginaw, where St. Benedict's Catholic Secondary School is, the proposal there as they build the roundabout is to put a pedestrian tunnel in, which, of course, is about as safe as safe gets. But I wish we could retrofit existing roundabouts and put tunnels in because, goodness gracious, mixing foot traffic and four-wheel traffic in the same place is a recipe that, unfortunately, we've seen go sideways far too many times over the past year or 18 months. If we could just move a crosswalk away from the roundabout itself, I think we're doing pretty good things. Let's go back to the phones. Mark, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mike. Hey, Mark. I'm calling from Barbados. No, you're not. I'm down here with Chef D, buddy. You, listen to I like it, though. You're painting the theater of the mind. Well done. Well done. I know I'm just kidding. <laughs> Chef, he called from, could you believe he did that calling from Barbados yesterday? I heard it. I what a, it. He's a lucky guy. He's a jerk. <laughs> he's not a jerk. <laughs> anyway, Mike, the uh, reason I'm calling, yes, sir. I, I really like uh, the way neighbors, in my neighborhood anyway, band together after a snowstorm. They do people sidewalks. The snowplow comes around. They help out with the end of the driveway. And um, neighbors just band together, Mike. Uh, so for me, um, I really like that. Mark, thanks for the call. I love hearing that. I love it, too. In fact, when I got home yesterday, which was later than I had hoped, it was almost 4 o'clock by the time I got my sorry butt home. Show ends at 1. Anyway, uh, somebody had already come by with the snowblower, which was terrific. There was still more to clean up later, but generally speaking, it was pretty easy. And maybe that's why I felt like yesterday's snowfall slash snowstorm was on the tame side. Uh, you know what? The roads weren't too bad for me. I got a good set of snow tires on my car and then got home, cleaned up what was left behind after the first go go around with the snowblower. But yeah, our neighborhood's great for that too. And I know most neighborhoods are. Those with the means who have the snowblowers out there tend to get involved and help out the next door neighbor. I was out walking though, Rosie, the pandemic pup the other night, and I saw a gentleman in his driveway with an electric snowblower. And I have never seen a snowblower do worse. Like it just, It's like you had to keep restarting the thing. I don't know what, I don't know what was going on. But anyway, or a, a battery operated. It wasn't, yeah, electric, well, you can call it EV. It was an EB, an electric blower. Anyway, 
We'll take a break. We'll come back with more of your 12 o'clock talk back. It's part of the Mike Farwell Show every day right here on City News 570. It is how it sounds. Time to talk back. 519-570-2545. Star 570 and 1-800-570-5715. Mary, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? So am I. I'm good. halfway to San Jose. Really? That's quite the bike <laughs> ride today, Mary. <laughs> yes, yes. Anyway, I have to side with Paul even though you didn't. Um, and I was wondering... Um, okay, hang on. Let's make sure everybody understands. You're siding with Paul, who says the onus of responsibility for safety on the roads is on the pedestrian. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, I, I've been thinking, where is Paul? Is he snowed in some in his tent somewhere up in northern Ontario? He this is a in. it's a different Paul that emailed me. Paul oh, from I Preston. See. He listen. Paul from Preston is in Preston, and so that's oh. all you need to know about that. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Well, um, I have to say that over the last number of years, pedestrians. I don't know what they're thinking. I don't think they're thinking. You see them. I know you do. They don't look left. They don't look right. They got their gadget, and away they go. And they expect not to get hit. No, Mary, I I think you're right. There are some very inattentive pedestrians. All I'm saying is that... Well, I don't know about all. I, I I try to stay away from generalizations, but fair point. If you think it's all of them, okay. all, all well, I'm we saying. We've even seen a, a young woman pushing a baby ahead of her on a gadget. So all I'm saying is, I don't one think that would get hit would be the baby. All I'm saying is, they have the right of way, but it is worth being dead right. <laughs> You're dead right, Mary. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All I'm saying is I don't think you can point at any one user group and say that's where the entire onus of responsibility should be placed. In a perfect world, the inattentive pedestrian is spared injury or death by the hyper-attentive driver. But we each must, when we are using our roads and, frankly, our sidewalks. When we are out in public, there are many other people to consider besides ourselves. And I think if we enter the public realm with that mindset, we're in a pretty good place. So everybody pay attention. Speaking of the gadgets and how much attention we pay to those, I got some feelings on that too, which we'll get to as we continue the 12 o'clock talkback hour here on the Mike Farwell Show. You're listening to City News 570. You know how to reach us here on the program. 519-570-2545, star 570, and one 
800-570-5715. I'm going to get right back to the phones, but just quickly because I mentioned it before that update with Aaron about the gadgets. Mary was talking about people who are walking on our streets and crossing them even without looking up from their phones. I am so sick and ding-dang tired of the ding-dang phones. Like, I get it, and I'm a pretty heavy user myself, although I think I've been getting a lot better, and I look forward to the day I don't need one anymore. Like, this is a pretty important piece of uh, the work that I do in order to stay connected, keep up with things, etc. But my point in all of this is you may have heard that the Toronto District School Board is creating its own policy. In fact, I mentioned this as part of our uh, Farwell Show, Five Things to Know for a day earlier this week. The Toronto District School Board is kind of going over and above what the province has set out by way of guidelines for cell phones in classrooms and is getting stricter about it. And I've heard from teachers who say the most energy they expend on a daily basis is in trying to engage with students who are too engaged in their phones. Like, get off your phone and pay attention to the lesson that's happening in the classroom. And I just think that teachers reach a point of frustration where they're like, whatever, be on your phone if you want to be on your phone. I'm going to teach the lesson anyway. And I don't know why, like I have no idea why we would be so reluctant to just ban cell phones in classrooms, period. And and it goes further than this. You might have heard like these social media trends right now to take videos or create TikToks or whatever the nonsense is that people do these days while they're in the gym, thus exposing others in the gym who may not wish to be exposed on video to your social media audience. Like, at what point did we stop just doing what we were doing or being where we were without needing to record and document and then post every single time? Like it just, I'm I'm so sick of it. I'm so sick of it. Now, I got I got chastised by my beloved a little bit, and I think rightly so. On Sunday, when I was at the Lions game with Paul Fixter, and she's like, "Well, did you get did you take a picture?" I'm like, "No, actually, I didn't." And that's maybe something you would want to remember. You know, the day you were at an NFL playoff game with a good buddy, but it just didn't occur to me because when I was at the game, I wanted to be at the game. I didn't go to the game to be on my phone. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't even think, well, I, I better share this on social media so everybody knows I'm at the game. I just, can't we just be where we are? I, it, it's starting to drive me a little bit crazy, in case you can't tell. Okay, sorry. That little rant is over. Let's go back to the phones and say hello to Kyle. Hi, Kyle. Hello, I'm calling from Upper Canada. <laughs> okay, you're not in the Maritimes? No, I'm in Ontario, Upper Canada. That's what it used to be called, where we are. I know, but that's why if you were in the Maritimes, that's Lower Canada, you see? Oh, <laughs> no, it was. I'm, I'm not making no, this I'm up. Not. No, no, no. This is, I, I got to go back to like grade 11 uh, history. Well, you started it with Upper Canada. Well, everybody else was calling in on where they were calling from. So I thought I'd just be honest and say I'm calling from Upper Canada. <laughs> I should start getting Devin to track that too, because it's one of the things I like about Rob's show. But of course, he's nationwide. So you get all kinds of little places, you know, Langley here, Halifax there, Gray Highlands, you know. But I, I we should, you know, where are you calling from today? Listy? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I could just change my location every single time. You should. Yeah. It depends on where you are. Well, every time I deliver, I'm in a different location. Well, that's what I mean. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, I Dev, and trust me, I, I gave Devin some great advice too on what he should be hanging in that little room of his. But uh, I was going to go back to the cell phone thing. How come we are? How come we did get so soft on cell phones in classrooms? I mean, when I was a kid, 
or I shouldn't say when I was a kid, when I was in high school, we had, you know, the old flip phones where it took you like 20 minutes to send a text message because you had to hit the button four times to get a letter. But, I mean, my teacher told me, get rid of it. Put it in your locker. I don't want to see it till the end of the, at the end of the day. I don't understand where or how we became so soft in Southlands. And maybe it has to go back to this morning. Maybe it's just there's no such thing as accountability anymore. And we all have to appeal everything because we don't get our way. I don't know, Mike. I don't know where we even start about it. So I think I agree with you. I think we should get rid of cell phones or any type of electronics in this in the classroom. You're there to learn, and when you when the classroom is done, you you go on your cell phone, you walk home, whatever, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yep. Anyways, thanks, Mike. Have a good one. All right, Kyle. Appreciate it. I think it's become one of those things where teachers ask themselves: Is this a hill I want to die on? Is it worth the fight? But it it should just be a really simple exchange. You're not allowed to use your cell phone in the classroom. Please put it away. And then the phone should be put away. And that should be the end of it. But for some reason, it's not the end of it. Pam, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Thanks for asking. Did I hear that you are a first-time caller? I am a first-time caller, yes. Newly retired, first-time caller. All right, hang on one second. (laughs) Yes! 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 (laughs) Yes! The first-time caller, Pam. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. My husband and I enjoy your show every single day. Thank you. All the time. Okay, I'm going to address the crosswalks at the uh, roundabouts. Yes. One of the, they're so darn dangerous. Um, many times I've seen where people almost get hit by a car. Um, this, why don't, why has, safety was not designed when they designed the roundabouts when it comes to pedestrian safety. Why don't they at least install some kind of a beaker? When somebody's ready to cross at the crosswalk, because you're always looking the wrong way when you're going trying to get into the roundabout. If they're if they're crossing at your right hand side, some you know more often than not, probably it's too late before you realize that. Oh my goodness, I'm just trying to cross. If they had some kind of a beacon, where you know just like when you press the button to use the crosswalk at a regular traffic light. That is, you know, the, the signals there for drivers as well as pedestrians to use. If they had some kind of a beacon or some kind of a flashing light, um, people would be more aware when people are trying to cross. Pam, I think it's an excellent idea. I've been advocating for moving the crosswalks 20 or 25 meters back from the roundabout so you're not even in the circle. But I think what you're talking about gets us... It's a heck of a lot cheaper, It right? is. Well, exactly. You just nailed, you read my mind. And what you said about the roundabouts not being designed with pedestrian safety in mind, 100%. You're bang on. 100%. And look how many taxpaying dollars we forked out to have all of these crosswalks put in between Cambridge and, and Kitchener. Sure, yeah. It's, it's insane. <laughs> that that would be a good I, word for it. All, all I'm asking is just for, I mean, it would be horrible. I'm surprised we don't have more rear-ending because of people that, like in one case, my, my husband's really adapt on them and he, he he's always keeping an eye out as soon as you see somebody kind of lingering around you know the crosswalk at a roundabout you can pretty much expect that they're thinking they're going to try and we call it suicide row because it's just but you hear screeching tires in behind us because we've stopped to have someone cross and the person that is coming around the roundabout is not that observant and statistics show that there are actually more collisions in roundabouts. They are just uh, less serious in nature because we're driving at slower speeds. But you're not wrong. We keep running into each other in the roundabouts. 
100 percent. Yep. Like especially where I live, like I've lived in Hesler Village. So the roundabout that's at Pine Bush and Franklin was the like, was a great install because there was almost, you know, hits every single day. I find that with the roundabout it's probably cut it back quite a bit. However, as long as you're driving it properly, but my biggest concern is the pedestrians. For sure. There's so so many people that live in that Cambry area that work in the industrial part and they walk to work every day and they rely on, on their, on the fact that they're going to be safe crossing where these roundabouts are. Pam, that's an excellent first time call. Don't be a stranger. Okay. Okay. I won't be. Thank you so much for your time. I love your show. Thank you so much. Really nice to hear. Really appreciate the call. Makes a lot of sense from where I'm sitting. We'll take a break. Come back with more. I see a Marlene, you know, my first grade teacher was named. No, she used to be a first grade teacher. She became a grade eight teacher when I was in grade eight. Her name was Marlene. Do you think it's, I wonder if it's her. We'll find out. The 12 o'clock talk back hour continues on the Mike Farwell show. This is City News 570. And let's get right back to those phones. It's a busy talk back hour today. Marlene, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm sorry I'm not your teacher. Oh, I was going to check, but you didn't sound like her either. That's okay, Marlene. <laughs> I'm glad you're calling anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Well, after hearing a couple of the conversations, now I've got so much more to say, but I'm, I'll try to stick to just my subject that I was calling about the schools and having cell phones in them. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I appreciate everybody's opinion, and everybody does have an opinion, but the number one thing is, is how are they going to man this? How are they going to make sure that this happens, that kids don't bring their cell phones to school <clears throat> and make sure that it's not using them in class? Uh, you know, the kid's going to put it in a basket for the teachers to hold on to until the end of class. Well, then something happens to it. Now it's the onus on the school or the teacher that something happened to it. You know, or and the, you'll have one of those kids that say, oh, well, it's mine. You don't have the right to take it. It's my property. You can't touch it. So I'm just curious on how or what other people's opinions are on how they're going to man this in schools. I don't think schools have enough staff to eat in the, as it is. Now you're going to put something in place where you have to man it. It just has to be a respect thing that teach, and that kids have to learn is not to use it when it's not appropriate. Marlene, that's a great call and a great point, and I get it. And I think that's really why we are where we are when it comes to cell phone usage in classrooms, because there are enough reasons to not try to enforce it. My suggestion is the kids keep it in their bags in class. It's not even within arm's reach. And if they don't bring bags to class, here's the other thing you can do. You can set up like a big pocket, a a big, uh, yeah, like a bunch of pockets. So you have a, when you come into the classroom, you, this contraption is hanging on the wall or on the back of the door and you insert your phone yourself into the pocket with your name on it, and then at the end of class, you take it out of the pocket. I've seen these in hockey dressing rooms. I think they make a lot of sense. You come to work, you put your phone in the the pocket on the wall, and then you go to work. You come to class, you're there to learn, so you're going to work. So you leave your phone in the pocket on the wall, and you pick it up on your way back out, and then you're the only one that's handling it, and you can even look at it longingly during the class if you want to. Daydream about your cell phone. I used to daydream in grade nine English class. I could look out and see the the uh, sun setting over the water on top of a church over on Margaret Avenue. And it just spun around in a circle. It spun every 26 seconds because I would count it. That's how I passed some time. Dylan, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, I was talking about roundabouts, a uh, huge pet peeve of mine. 
Um, I'll get off Homer Watson onto Huron. As Huron comes up beside Huron Heights High School, there is a bus stop that stops five feet short of the crosswalk uh, in the roundabout. It's a two-lane roundabout. So now cars come flying up the left-hand side of the bus, and kids who just got off the bus are walking on the crosswalk. Like, why why on earth they would park, you know, a, a huge bus right in your, your, your line of sight? Uh, like, it, it's like the, the region's trying to make it hard to see pedestrians in the roundabout. It's unbelievable. Dylan, excellent call. Thank you very much for bringing it forward. These are the little things that I hope, because that's an easy fix, right? Why are you putting the bus stop there? What in H-E double hockey sticks are we doing? And maybe, just maybe, hearing what Dylan says and the passion with which he expresses it leads to change. That should be a pretty easy change. Let's not increase the risk unnecessarily. This is the 12 o'clock Talkback Hour on the Mike Farwell Show, City News 570. It is three minutes to one, an update from the City News Center, and then Now You Know with Rob Snow. We continue our time together. Back to the phones, Grant. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mike. I have a quick comment. Well, question, and then I'll make my comment. Okay. Question, and this is maybe a question for Rob Snow going forward, because we really don't know yet. What this trucker's convey cost this country? Well, there were some pretty significant uh, estimates placed around, for example, when some of those uh, border blockades were going on and what it was costing us in terms of commerce cross-border. In Ottawa, I don't know, unless we're going to start adding up the costs of all of the policing, etc. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I'm getting at. Yep. So we won't know that going forward because of the dilemma still goes on. Well, I think we can put together a pretty good estimate. In fact, it might already exist. It would have cost... Uh, could be. Biz- ...businesses in Ottawa would have lost some money, etc. Oh, wow. Uh, it it gives uh, the irate truckers a name, and they must have a pile of money behind them coming from somewhere, and uh, there's been different statements made from where and whom, but anyways, uh, having said that, I think that the judgment of the judge that was made this past week or so on on it is uh, absolutely crazy. Like I I know a lot of truckers that truck across Canada, and they weren't in agreement. They wouldn't have. They want to. Uh, they didn't want to have anything to do with it because it, it was all right if it would have only lasted for three or four days. Yeah, it, listen, Grant, it wasn't every trucker, and I think everybody understands that not every trucker was at the convoy, but I still maintain that the judge got it right in this regard. I think that the application of the Emergencies Act was unreasonable. You just needed to get people to do their damn jobs, and nobody was doing their damn job. Uh, Jason, I'm down to about 30 seconds. Hi, Mike. Uh, first-time caller, Jason, while I drive back to Waterloo from Lashago. Atta boy. Uh, good show this morning. Two quick comments. Uh, one on the uh, roundabouts. Uh, have you had a chance to speak to any of the planners that work for the city of Kitchener, Cambridge, Waterloo, about 
the, the, the methodical approach to putting in uh, roundabouts. Just, just putting it out there. Great perspectives. I've enjoyed the comments. And secondly, when it comes to cell phone use in schools, I've heard of schools putting in uh, scramblers that uh, mix up the Wi-Fi signal or the uh, data signal so students uh, can't be... Uh, you know, uh, spending time uh, surfing the internet and that sort of thing, and just wondered what kind of tools and technology exist out there that can keep students engaged with uh, learning as opposed to distracted on their phones. I love it. Jason, great way to finish. We tried to get a planner onto the show earlier this week to talk roundabouts. It didn't work, but I love my first-time callers. Yeah! Yes! Yes! An update from the City News Center, and then now you know with Rob Snow, this is City News 570.